Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of childhood physical and sexual abuse and a brief mention of suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. After 25 years with her husband, Susan Polk was deeply unhappy. At first, she told herself that she and Felix were simply growing apart. It was only natural. The longer she thought about it, though, the more it seemed like something else was going on. Felix had been urging her to try a new memory recovery technique he used on his patients. She figured it couldn't hurt. She shut her eyes and imagined herself back in his Berkeley office, just 15 years old. She watched as he pushed a cup of tea towards her. She tried to say no, but he insisted. As she relived the memory, a feeling of dread washed over her. A little voice in her head told her something bad happened when she drank the tea, but she couldn't remember exactly what. Suddenly, Susan's entire body twitched. She knew that if she opened her eyes right then, she'd forget about the whole thing. Maybe nothing had to change, but she couldn't turn back now. One way or another, she'd find the truth, no matter how painful it was. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. This is the third episode of our four-part special on Felix and Susan Polk. Over the next two weeks, we'll dive deep into a heinous crime, decades in the making. You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This time, Dr. Felix Polk hops on the latest trend to become an expert in recovered memory therapy. When his wife, Susan, gives it a try, she remembers something that changes everything between them. Next time in the final episode of our special, the Polks snap under the weight of Susan and Felix's dysfunction. In the end, Felix's refusal to let Susan go leads to tragedy. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. 
That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. As the 1980s came to a close, the satanic panic started to fade. Stories about ritual abuse went from headline news to small line items at best. With less airtime, the collective fear and paranoia slowly dissipated too. But for people like the Polks, who'd publicly invested in the movement, things were more complicated. 58-year-old Dr. Felix Polk had staked his professional reputation on the conspiracy, becoming a sought-after therapist for alleged victims. That well started to run dry, but Felix could always count on his longtime clients, some of whom he'd been seeing since the early 70s. He continued teaching graduate students at a local university on the side. Then there was just the issue of the Polk's advocacy organization called Enough. Felix and his wife, 33-year-old Susan, founded the group to campaign for legislative change. Their work gave them valuable name recognition in the Bay Area, so it was glaringly obvious when the vigils and protests just stopped. Quick-witted as always, Felix had no trouble sidestepping the thorny PR issue. If anyone asked, he said he and Susan were being threatened by Satanists. Felix didn't specify what the threats were, but with three small children to think about, it was really best to just shut it all down. With that, the Polks tried to embrace a fresh start in the new decade, and for a while it seemed like that might actually be possible. Susan stepped back into her role as devoted mother and wife. She had dinner on the table every night by 6 p.m. sharp. Around friends, she and Felix looked more in love than ever. But even those who admired the couple couldn't help but notice their dynamic was a little archaic. See, Felix had a habit of treating Susan more like his oldest child than his partner. He often talked down to her, correcting and over-explaining the tiniest things. While some might have bristled at his patronizing tone, Susan never pushed back. On the outside, she seemed grateful for Felix's guidance. Still, it's hard to imagine she actually felt this way deep down. As co-founder of Enough, she'd finally found her voice. Felix didn't seem to realize that Susan was an independent, capable woman. Not only did she oversee the family finances, she was almost single-handedly raising their children. Although Felix worked out of their home, he didn't spend much time with the boys. Susan made practically all the parenting decisions on her own. Wrangling three kids all under 10 years old is no easy feat. Luckily, there was plenty to keep the family busy in their Berkeley neighborhood. There was a park, a library, and a few shops within walking distance. Susan was often seen out and about with little Adam, Eli, and Gabriel trailing behind her like ducklings. The walks weren't always pleasant, though. Sometimes Susan would become terrified out of the blue. Her eyes wide and voice clipped, she'd suddenly tell the boys to be on the lookout. She was convinced that someone was following them. Her kids were too young to understand what was going on, but it scared them nonetheless, especially because their dad also seemed to think something was up. When Susan told Felix about their alleged stalker, he believed her no questions asked. He took it a step further, insisting the sightings were proof that he and Susan were being targeted by Satanists. 
while her latest illusions happened to fit neatly into his cover story, his encouragement was disastrous for Susan's mental health. She became increasingly paranoid until she saw danger around every corner. Berkeley was no longer safe. They had to get out as soon as possible. Though it was a bittersweet goodbye for Felix, who'd spent the last two decades in the liberal haven, he agreed it was time to go. Not only did the move bolster his image as a supportive husband, it also gave him an opportunity to flex their wealth. In 1992, the Polks moved to Piedmont, a bougie little enclave in the middle of Oakland. Though it was surrounded by a big city, Piedmont was a small town in every way. With only 10,000 residents, it screamed exclusivity. From the beginning, it was designed to be a raft of white wealth floating above the economic and racial disparities in Oakland. Thanks to Susan's financial wizardry, Felix's practice consistently brought in six figures per year. Combined with her real estate investments, the family was able to afford an impressive half-million-dollar home. It had everything they needed and more, including a 1,500-square-foot library and, of course, a private office for Felix. It probably felt more like a homecoming to him since he'd grown up extremely wealthy before the outbreak of World War II. At 60 years old, he was still attractive, charming, and intelligent. He was hard not to like, and he easily fit in with their upper-crust neighbors. Unlike Felix, Susan had never been particularly good at forming connections, but in the spirit of new beginnings, she decided to give it another try. She enrolled the boys in the nearby public school and quickly accepted the job of classroom mom. The other kids played in the local soccer league, so she signed hers up too. She was always there cheering them on, orange slices and Capri Suns in tow. Still, she didn't seem to realize that simply being at the games wasn't enough to make friends. Rather than sitting in the stands with the other moms, she stood off on the sidelines. When Felix made the odd appearance, he wasn't much help. Rather than encourage her to get out of her comfort zone, he kept her wrapped up in private conversation. After a season of waiting for something to change, Susan shut down. She'd always been an outsider in one way or another. If the women in Piedmont didn't want to include her, fine. From then on, she clashed with nearly everyone. And that kind of attitude had consequences. Her boys, like their father, had no problems making friends. Lots of kids wanted to come over and play at the Polk House. Unfortunately, the local parents weren't always thrilled about having Susan in charge. They seriously questioned her judgment. Once, she took a bunch of kids, including ones that weren't hers, out to get their ears pierced without asking for permission. Her behavior wasn't just about being the fun, cool mom. She had a long-standing history of rebelling against authority, starting with her high school teachers. The only opinion she'd ever respected was Felix's, probably because he encouraged her to ignore everyone else. And he took the same approach with his sons. When 13-year-old Adam started crashing birthday parties and bar mitzvahs, neither Felix nor Susan were upset in the slightest. In a bizarre twist, they were proud of him for bucking social norms. That was only the half of it. At one point, Susan bought a new rental property in town and noticed some old asbestos shingles on the roof. 
Worried, she raced to remove the hazardous material. But the building stood near the elementary school, and the other parents were nervous about their children being exposed to a known carcinogen. They tried to talk to Susan, but she wouldn't hear it. The shingles needed to be removed, and she'd already gotten the permits from the city. She didn't need their approval to go through with it. The incident made her somewhat infamous among the other Piedmont parents and sealed her reputation as a nightmare of a neighbor. You'd think her standing as the town pariah would bother Felix, but he loved it because it allowed him to be Susan's shoulder to cry on. The truth was he didn't want to share his wife with anyone else. When he wasn't working, he always found ways to be with her. He seemed to be able to sense when she was about to leave the house, emerging from his office just as she grabbed her keys. He didn't even let her go grocery shopping alone. Every time their paths crossed, he stopped her for a hug or a kiss. Their friends took this behavior as a sign that their relationship was full of mutual love and affection. But by her 40th birthday in 1997, something had changed. That year, Felix threw her a surprise party with his friends and patients all in attendance. By then, Susan didn't have anyone to add to the guest list herself. As Felix gave a speech in her honor, a dam burst in Susan's mind. Disappointments she'd been holding back for years broke through to the surface, along with every doubt she'd ever had about their relationship. It all came flooding out at once. He was so much older than her, nearly twice her age. He could have been her dad. Not to mention, he used to be her therapist. It was wrong. And though she knew on some level that she'd chosen this life, she still couldn't figure out why. It took 16 years, but Susan was finally starting to think she'd made a terrible mistake. Coming up, a new psychological craze widens the cracks in Susan and Felix's marriage. The floorboards creak. The walls, they moan. The house seems vacant, but you're not alone. This October, Parcast invites you to celebrate the spookiness of the Halloween season with all new episodes of Haunted Places. From an infamous murder farm in Indiana to the ghostly tombs and palaces of ancient Egypt, visit the world's most haunted destinations and find out what happens when a soul leaves the body but doesn't leave the grounds. Enjoy new episodes of Haunted Places all month long, free, and only on Spotify. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. After hitting the big 4-0, Susan Polk took a long, hard look at her life. And she didn't like what she saw, especially when it came to her marriage with 65-year-old Felix Polk. 
Susan couldn't ignore his condescending attitude any longer. One time, Felix commented that she dressed too much like a hippie. As if she were a rebellious teen, she purchased a pair of Birkenstocks the next day. The kicker came while they were watching news coverage of ethnic cleansing in Bosnia. Susan was horrified. She observed that the whole thing was like the Holocaust, to which Felix responded that those people were animals. She stared back at him in disbelief. The lack of compassion in his voice was truly unsettling. Susan always thought she'd married a caring man, but the person sitting across from her was a stranger. As they made their way to bed that night, a sinking feeling settled in the pit of her stomach. Although Felix thought he was an attentive husband, he was totally oblivious to Susan's unhappiness, probably because his focus was somewhere else entirely. For some time, he'd been trying to hold on to the expert status he'd attained during the satanic panic. So when recovered memory therapy, or RMT, came into vogue in the mid-1990s, he eagerly jumped on the bandwagon. The interest in RMT was most likely a reaction to the agony of the previous decade. Hundreds of thousands of children were pushed to recall terrible stories of supposed abuse. Soon, adults started to wonder if they also had horrible experiences buried in their subconscious. Memories that might explain the emotional issues they faced in their adult lives. We don't know exactly when Felix hopped on the trend, but he found success pretty quickly. Most of the techniques were similar to those used in Est, which Felix had been using in his practice since the late 1960s. Let's take one of Felix's longtime patients, who we'll call Nora, as an example. She wanted to address the panic attacks she had whenever she drove across the Bay Bridge. Felix led her through his favorite visualization technique, which he cribbed directly from his days in Est. He instructed Nora to imagine herself in front of a TV, with each channel representing a year in her life. Then he told her to flip backward through the channels until she reached the moment she first felt panic. Felix believed the subconscious would lead her to the exact memory that needed to be explored. More often than not, it was a recollection of abuse. Once Nora identified the memory, Felix asked her to describe what she was seeing on the TV screen in her mind. Nora recalled being on a bridge with her father when she was very young. He was taking her to the spot where he regularly sexually assaulted her. After she confronted this memory, Nora's panic attacks disappeared. Just like that, Felix's work was done. It almost seemed too simple, and a lot of times it was. Because Felix and many other RMT practitioners ignored how easy it is to create false memories, especially of childhood events. When someone is asked to picture something over and over, eventually it becomes impossible for them to tell whether the event happened at all. To be fair to Felix, he couldn't exactly question the validity of these claims. The reality of sexual abuse and assault was only just entering the public consciousness. Victims had a hard enough time getting others to believe them. Their therapist doubting them would feel that much worse. So, Felix carried on with RMT, healing people left and right. Boundaries like doctor-patient confidentiality never meant much to him. 
just like he always had, he told Susan all about his sessions. Hearing about the breakthroughs he facilitated for other women made her curious about her own memories. Her 40th birthday had already flipped a switch in her mind. She was deeply unsatisfied with her life and didn't have any more patience for Felix's controlling attitude. She started passively aggressively pushing him away. It was mostly small things at first, like cooking vegetarian dinners because she knew it made him mad. Felix was mostly unaware of the extent of Susan's depression and how much of it she blamed on him. Even so, he could sense that something was off. He encouraged her to give RMT a shot. Maybe it would reveal the source of her issues. Although Susan was pretty sure he was the problem, she was open to the possibility that it was something else. So she decided to give it a try. And in 1998, she appeared to get results. The Polks were on a family trip to Disneyland, and the happiest place on earth turned out to be anything but. One night in their hotel, Susan broke down sobbing uncontrollably for hours. When she could finally speak, she told Felix about the horrible images playing in her mind. She believed they were from a childhood memory. She was scared and hiding from a man who she later identified as her father. Since they were on vacation, the Polks didn't spend much time exploring that particular memory. That didn't matter though, because they just kept coming. Once they were back home in Piedmont, Susan had several more revelations. The first was that her mom, Helen Bowling, wasn't her biological mother. This was closely followed by a horrific recollection that her parents had murdered a police officer in LA, a place they'd never even lived. Susan vividly remembered watching Helen and her father drag the helpless man into a basement before beating him to death with a hammer. When Susan confronted Helen with her accusations, her mother was understandably upset. Details about the state of their relationship at this point are vague. However, their mother-daughter bond had been on thin ice ever since Susan got involved with Felix. Helen rarely pushed back against his influence, but this must have been the final straw. She vehemently denied every one of Susan's claims, even agreeing to take a DNA test to prove they were related. Though the test came back positive, it wasn't enough to dispel Susan's latest string of delusions, especially because Felix actively encouraged her to stand her ground. Many RMT patients cut off contact with their families after recovering traumatic memories. It's possible Felix pushed Susan to do the same. Despite the contradictory evidence, Felix still continued to tell his wife she was right. He kind of had to, because RMT was under attack all over the country. By the late 90s, a slew of researchers and academics had come out against the treatment. Once again, Felix was the poster boy for a dying movement, but he wasn't going to give in so easily this time. Not only was RMT a highly lucrative part of his practice, it had restored his standing in Susan's life. She was turning to him rather than against him, leaning on him for guidance and support. Not everyone in the Polk household was willing to wear blinders, however. Once upon a time, 15-year-old Adam thought all moms were like Susan, worrying about the weirdest things. Now that he was older, 
he knew his mom was different. And as the son of a psychologist, he understood there was a fine line between anxiety and paranoia. He was pretty sure Susan had already crossed it many times. So Adam did what any concerned child would do. He tried to talk to his dad about it. But Felix shut him down hard and fast. He insisted Susan wasn't crazy. He assured his son that Susan was simply going through a hard time. See, Felix had already supposedly cured Susan back when she was his patient. Healing her was one of his proudest accomplishments. If he admitted that she still needed help, it would mean he failed her as a therapist. Whether he believed his father or not, Adam dropped the idea for the time being. He knew Felix loved Susan and wanted the best for her. Felix really should have listened to his son. Before long, Susan was back to obsessing over their marriage. She tried to tap into her early therapy sessions with Felix and was surprised to find her memories were hazy. According to RMT, that meant something had been repressed, so Susan started to dig. She knew hypnosis and guided visualizations were Felix's specialty, and she recalled doing both as part of her treatment program. But when she imagined herself back in his Berkeley office, a new feeling popped up. She felt scared of Felix. Just like he taught her to, she honed in on the feeling. Before long, a disturbing scene surfaced in her mind. She was sitting on the couch and Felix handed her a cup of tea. After a few sips, he instructed her to count backward from 100 as she slipped into a hypnotic trance. In her semi-conscious state, Felix ordered her to lay down on a white towel he spread out on the floor. Then, he had sex with her. She wasn't 17 or 18 and in love like they'd been saying for years. In this memory, she was only 16. Susan immediately confronted Felix with the discovery. The more she thought about it, the angrier she got. Their entire relationship was a lie. It had never been her choice at all. Before Felix could respond, she accused him of being a manipulative mastermind who tricked her into getting married. Felix couldn't believe what he was hearing. Competing instincts flooded his mind. For once, he couldn't just jump on board and champion Susan's cause. From where he stood, he only had two options, one bad and one worse. He could go against everything he'd preached for the last decade and refute Susan's claims. Or he could admit to sexually abusing his wife when she was his underage patient. At this point, most of the people who knew the truth about their salacious beginnings were out of the picture. He and Susan even told their children they met when she was his student. Now their secret threatened to resurface. And this time, the stakes were higher than ever. Back in the 70s, such matters had been left to the court of public opinion, but professional ethical standards had finally caught up. In 1992, the California Psychological Association declared sexual relationships between therapists and patients a violation. If Susan filed a complaint against him, Felix would face real consequences. He could have his license revoked or even face jail time. In the past, Felix never had much trouble charming his way out of sticky situations. 
but it seemed like something he couldn't talk his way out of. Coming up, Susan pulls at the threads of her memory, and the entire Polk family unravels. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In 1998, 66-year-old Felix Polk faced a reckoning. He'd introduced his wife, 41-year-old Susan, to recovered memory therapy. And she recalled something that threatened to topple their entire relationship— Normally, Susan would have gone to Felix for advice, but given the content of the memory, his guidance was the last thing she wanted. Still, she needed help sorting through the intense barrage of emotions, so when Felix suggested she see a psychologist, Susan agreed. There was just one caveat. He made her promise not to talk about their time as therapist and patient. Yep, you heard that right. Despite everything, Felix's main concern was still his reputation. And despite how angry she was, for some reason, Susan went along with his request, which meant she couldn't tell the therapist what was actually bothering her. To avoid accidentally spilling the beans, she kept their conversations vague. But one day, she was feeling brave. She told her counselor that Felix was much older than her and had controlling tendencies. According to her, the therapist commented that divorce seemed inevitable. We don't know whether she typically told Felix about her sessions, but she did tell him about that one. Unsurprisingly, he didn't take it well. Convinced that Susan wasn't giving a balanced account of the situation, he demanded she write a letter to the psychologist about the positive aspects of their relationship. I wish I was joking. With Felix keeping such close tabs on her, it was basically impossible for Susan to get the help she needed. In a way, it probably felt pointless, and her mindset only worsened. Susan kept up with RMT and continued to recover memories from her early years with Felix, and the new recollections had an unhinged hue to them. Susan accused Felix of working with the CIA and somehow also being an Israeli spy. She even suspected that he'd tried to poison her before and started to worry he'd do it again. She bounced between intense paranoia and anger, She and Felix fought so often that eventually they stopped trying to hide it from the boys. 
Susan would mock Felix's manhood at the dinner table and casually throw out racial slurs against his Jewish heritage. In return, Felix did the worst thing he could think of, calling her crazy in front of her sons. Yet despite how angry he was, he still wouldn't consider divorce. Whenever she brought it up, he pointed out that no judge would grant her custody of the kids in her current state. To Susan, it sounded just like the suicide threats he made when she tried to leave him years earlier. Only this time, she refused to back down. Pretty soon, their confrontations escalated from screaming to shoving matches. Of course, it didn't take long for the hostile atmosphere to affect the boys. Their middle son, 12-year-old Eli, had established a reputation that was almost as bad as Susan's. He'd always been the problem child, getting into more trouble than his brothers. It didn't help that Felix and Susan played favorites. Although Felix pegged most of his childhood trauma on his own parents' favoritism, he clearly showed a preference for Adam. Meanwhile, Susan doted on the baby of the family, Gabriel, the way many moms tend to do. None of that meant Eli was neglected per se, but he had to make more of an effort to get his parents' attention, and the easiest way to do that was misbehaving. And as the Polk home turned into a war zone, his behavior got significantly worse. One evening, Eli and some buddies broke into a classmate's house. The boys managed to make off with over $100 worth of alcohol. Eventually, someone called in the robbery and the cops caught Eli and his friends enjoying their spoils. This was his first brush with the Piedmont PD, but it wasn't his last. Only a few months later, an officer stopped a vehicle for a broken headlight. He must have been blown away to find 13-year-old Eli behind the wheel. Forget driving without a license, he was too young to apply for his learner's permit. Adam and Gabriel's track records weren't much better than their brothers. Both were regularly sent to the principal's office for fighting. By this point, no one wanted their children hanging around with the no-good Polk boys. But telling a teenager no almost always has the opposite effect, and the kids in Piedmont were no exception. Adam, Eli, and Gabriel were as popular as ever. The police responded to so many noise complaints about their ragers that many officers had the Polk's address memorized. Susan's us-against-the-world mentality worked heavily in her son's favor. When the cops came to break up their parties, she claimed harassment. But it wasn't just the underage keggers that irked their neighbors. Susan and Felix's knock-down, drag-out bras could be heard from the street, and Susan was more unhinged than ever. One time, a neighbor's gardener trimmed a hedge that wasn't even close to her property. Yet Susan was so angry about it that she screamed at their housekeeper until the poor woman was in tears. On another day, she caused a scene after accusing another neighbor of trying to poison her dogs. Even outsiders could tell that Susan lived in a world where everyone was out to get her and her family. And it all came to a head in the fall of 2000. Susan had been pushing Felix to take his office out of the house. She was sick and tired of him constantly hovering around, tracking her every move. Finally, he'd caved and asked her to help him find a place to rent. Susan already had plans to go to the beach that day. When she told him he'd just have to look for himself, 
Felix, went off. He screamed at her and forbade her from leaving the house. There are conflicting accounts about how and why things got physical. Susan says that Felix hit her, while another report states that he knocked a baseball cap off her head. Either way, the argument escalated and Susan ran to the kitchen. There, she started smashing their wedding china, plate by plate. Felix waded through the shards, trying to stop her. According to Susan, he commanded her to go to her room like she was a petulant child. When she didn't, he dragged her up the stairs. Eli and Adam heard the commotion and came running. They saw Felix standing over Susan, blocking her way out of the bedroom. He yelled something about being so mad he could hit her. At that moment, 15-year-old Eli raced forward and did the job for him. He punched his mom in the mouth so hard her lip split and blood poured from the wound. The three of them froze in shock. 17-year-old Adam scrambled to call the police. Before he could dial, Felix stopped him. This was a family matter, and they were going to settle it among themselves. But Adam was reaching his limit. It had been two years since he'd first tried to talk to his dad about what was really going on with Susan. Still, it seemed neither of his parents were willing to face reality. Not that Adam blamed his mom. Whatever Felix said, Adam knew she was sick. Unfortunately, he and his brothers didn't have many options. So he did as he was told and hung up the phone. Like they always did, his parents swept the incident under the rug, even after Susan came home from the ER with five stitches in her lip. Those were the least of her concerns, though. Susan's hands and feet had been tingling every now and again for months now. Pretty soon, they started to go completely numb. It's possible, even likely, that this was a symptom of the intense anxiety she'd been living with, but she took it as a much darker omen. On a hunch, she stopped accepting the wine Felix generously poured for her in the evenings, so he started bringing her coffee in the morning. It was probably nothing more than a feeble attempt to make amends, but Susan was suspicious, especially because she noticed the coffee made her sleepier. This was all it took to convince her that Felix was trying to poison her again. Once the idea popped into her mind, it was impossible to get rid of it. Meanwhile, Felix reached for a different diagnosis, Still refusing to accept that Susan's problems were entirely psychological, he started to tell people she had multiple sclerosis. He had no medical evidence to support the idea, but it made for a good cover story. Not only did it provide a scapegoat for Susan's erratic behavior, it also earned him a fair amount of sympathy. When he described the situation, he made it sound like she was approaching her deathbed, of course, he made sure to mention that no one should talk to Susan about it. It would only upset her. Felix might have found a way to save face with his patients, colleagues, and students, but there was no recovering their reputations around the neighborhood. Since Gabriel and Eli had both been expelled from school, it seemed like the perfect opportunity for a fresh start. The Polks pulled up their anchor once again and prepared to leave Piedmont in their wake. The family's next home was nestled in the foothills, above the whirlpool they'd just escaped. On some level, each member of the family hoped their problems would stay where they'd left them. 
but the picturesque backdrop would turn out to be the stage for the Polk's final dramatic days. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with the final episode of our series. After three decades of manipulation and delusion, Susan and Felix's relationship comes to a deadly end. For more information on Susan and Felix Polk, we found Seduced by Madness, the true story of the Susan Polk murder case by Carol Pogash extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Katovich. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Thank you.